CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Today on Political Rewind, members of Georgia's congressional delegation spar over William Barr and the continuing reverberations from the Mueller report. A Gwinnett County GOP stalwart may change parties to win re-election. Johnny Isaacson urges President Trump not to impose tariffs on auto imports. Political Rewind starts now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being with us for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Let's get right to our panel so we can start talking about the stories in the news this week. Jim Galloway is with us. He, of course, is the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. His column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC, and he oversees the Political Insider blog uh, at AJC.com. Before we introduce the rest of the panel, let's do a quick promotion for you. We've talked about the fact that Judge Robert Benham, the longest-serving justice on the state Supreme Court and the first African-American on the state Supreme Court, has announced he's not going to run for re-election. He's got some time left. You really dug up some great nuggets and interviewed him for your column. Yeah, I, we, we had a great time together. Yeah. And it's, it's up online. You can, you can find it right now. I was trying to sell papers for Sunday, Galloway. Well, well yeah, but, but I, need the, I, need the, I, need the, I need the page views, That's too. That's right. You need click-throughs. I get it. Anyhow, it's a really interesting piece. Maybe we'll talk briefly about Benham before the show is over. Buddy Darden is with us today. He's the uh, former Democratic congressman from the 7th District, which used to be Cobb County and, and, uh, and, and precincts north all the way. You went all the way up to the... Went Tennessee the, line, yeah. I went from Atlanta city limits to the yeah. Chattanooga city limits. Yeah. But yeah. now it's mainly uh, the 11th. Yeah, that's district. the 11th. It's Barry um, Loudermilk's Loudermilk. district now. Mm -hmm. Glad to have you back with Glad us. Glad to be back. Thank you. Uh, buddy. Dr. Andra Gillespie, political science professor from Emory University, is back with us today. Her new book on Barack Obama is now out. We really enjoyed the show we got to do with you on that book. I enjoyed it too. Thank you. Um, and. You're just about finished with school. Almost. You gave your last exam of the semester already? Yes, gave my final exam yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Emma now graduated. I just have to grade it. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, and Eric is uh, back with us today. Of course, he's a longtime Republican operative in Georgia. He's raised uh, countless amounts of money for Republican candidates, for president, for uh, statewide office, for. Uh, uh, Friends of his from across the country, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, were uh, uh, beneficiaries of your wisdom and your abilities as a fundraiser. You work with Mitt Romney. You've got uh, great credentials, Tannen Blatt. Well, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you here as well. All right, let's start, if we can, Jim, with um, the latest. I mean, obviously, the political war news out of Washington was dominated by the hearings, the Judiciary Committee hearing in the Senate on Wednesday, William Barr coming in and, and talking to senators, some of whom were very skeptical about what Barr had to say about the Mueller report and how he put together his findings. Some were, uh, in fact, completely supportive of him. It was, it, we, we won't go into that. People have already seen enough of it. But yesterday, uh, Barr was expected to testify at the, in the House Judiciary Committee. And uh, he declined to show up because he was not happy 
with the arrangement that the chair, the Democratic chair of that committee, Gerald Nadler, wanted to put in place, which was not only would members of the committee get to interview Barr, but he wanted staff attorneys to also be part of the interviews. Now, we tend to talk about Georgia news on this show, and so there's a reason we're addressing it now, and that's our own Doug Collins, who really uh, was, again, a big defender of Donald Trump right, in this, right. in yeah, this yeah. committee so, yesterday. Again, he's the ranking, uh, ranking Republican on, on the House Judiciary Committee. Lucy McBath is on that same committee. Uh, so, so, we have, so we have representation here. Well, it, it, was, it was interesting. You, you know, there, there, were, there, were, there were two things, I think, behind the House move. Uh, that and and which was heavily criticized by by Mr. Collins. Uh, I think they wanted uh, a committee counsel to 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 question Mr. Barr for, for two reasons. Number one, uh, you get more consistent question, more follow up. Mm -hmm. you do, you're not chopping your 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 your, your interrogators into five minute uh, sound bits where they make speeches and such. So you actually you're actually getting more information. But as we saw with the Kavanaugh hearing, it also insulates the 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 dominant uh, the, the leadership of the of the House committee from any 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 blowback uh, from from that questioning which I, I think is, is, is an underlying reason for that, too. So I want to open it up to the panel, but before we do, let's look at what Doug Collins had to say. Again, uh, the attorney general said he would not appear in this committee because he didn't like the format of having to answer questions of attorney, staff attorneys. He, he said he was willing to talk to members themselves. Um, Nadler, in his remark, they met yesterday. It was... It was a dog and pony show to the extent that they knew that uh, the attorney general wasn't going to be there. They had his place set. They had his place, his name card out. Uh, but the Democrats who control the committee knew all along he wouldn't be there. Nadler, of course, attacked Barr for not showing up. And then Doug Collins had his chance as the ranking member of the committee to respond. So let's listen. But yet we spent a, and approved a motion yesterday that said we could do a whole hour, an extra hour between the chairman and myself, he could have took one of these fabulous members that he has, and he has some excellent attorneys on his side, some of the best. He could have given them all 30 minutes, and they could have questioned the attorney general any way they wanted to. Instead, we go back to a circus political stunt to say we want it to look like an impeachment hearing because they won't bring impeachment proceedings. That's the reason. Take whatever you want to take. You can go out and have press conferences. You can say it from this dice. You can say whatever you want to have. But the reason Bill Barr is not here today is because the Democrats decided they didn't want him here today. Doug Collins, uh, Andrew Gillespie, no matter which side you're on on this fight, Doug Collins has been a strong defender of uh, President Trump. And what's interesting about him is he's, he can be incredibly partisan as he was there, but he's so very well liked up there because of the kind of person they all think he is. It was that way when he was in the General Assembly here as well, but he's really making a name for himself in that role. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's what comes with sort of the privilege of being the ranking member of a really sort of high-ranked and highly visible committee. Um, you know, I think if we want to look at the charges of gamesmanship, I think this is one of those places where the moral equivalence actually really does apply. Um, and so Congressman Collins can claim that they may have been pulling a stunt or they were trying to back uh, Attorney General Barr into a corner. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, 
know, by them saying you're trying to make this look like Watergate instead of having the guts to impeach, you're also attempting to try to play a card um, in, in that particular vein. Um, and if this is the case, Congress has the right to have oversight over the executive branch. And when the executive branch refuses to comply and refuses to show up and refuses to cooperate, right, Congress has the right to be able to, to say so. Yeah. Um, yeah, Eric, buddy. Well, this hearing that was scheduled been held a way it didn't show would, would have been a partisan hearing. I'm sure there have been a lot of people tagging the attorney general. At the same time, uh, he also skated uh, the day before when he was over at the Senate. So the Senate's all for him and the House is probably all against him. But that's part of the give and take. And I think the attorney general, I think in order to preserve his reputation and to get back into the political mainstream where he previously has been, he needs to go ahead and show up and just take his lumps just like everybody else. He's a big boy. He can handle himself. And he doesn't need to be uh, put in a situation of saying, hey, I'm not going to do it unless they play it by my rules. You know, when we came down here today, uh, we agreed to your format, Bill, and that's just kind of the way it works. <laughs> I do think the comment that Doug made about, or Congressman Collins made about political theater is, is accurate. I mean, there's no reason why elected members of Congress can't question the attorney general. That's what happened in the Senate. And, you know, people can have their opinions as to what the attorney general said when he appeared before the Senate. The same thing can happen in the House. And I think that Congressman Collins is absolutely right. Apparently, they agreed to a certain format and the majority, you know, changed uh, the way that they were going to do it. Now, look, elections have consequences. The Democrats control the House. They unfortunately control the, the committees. Uh, and they have the, you know, the prerogative to do that. But I think Congressman Collins is absolutely right. This is political theater. And unfortunately, uh, with this particular issue, everyone has sort of dug in and has a position. So uh, uh, all that said, and we can talk a little more about that, but, but talk a little bit about the position this puts Doug Collins in. How does this elevate his profile? What does his elevated profile mean moving forward? Uh, how does this accrue to his benefit or his detriment? Well, I think he's showing leadership. And, you know, for someone uh, who has, was, has only been in the Congress for, you know, a few years, for him to move up the ranks so quickly, I think says speaks volumes uh, to his capabilities. And, and I think what he did yesterday demonstrates why he is the ranking member of the committee. But it's a two-way street because once you identify with being the ranking minority member and staking out the ground so tough and so hard and so intractable, at the same time, then you lose the aura of being somewhat uh, circumspect about looking at things. And so it's going to identify him, for better or for worse, as a pretty serious part of it. All right. I find that interesting, uh, Jim and Andra, to talk about circumspection in the climate of our Congress today. There's really no such thing anymore. I mean, that it, we all looked at what happened yesterday in the House and the day before in the Senate Judiciary Committee from the partisan lens that we are viewing the world through. So I'm not sure I see the downside that uh, that Buddy does in terms of needing to seem more circumspect. Well, I, I think I, I see both of your points. And so I think on one hand, if we think about the fact that there really isn't a national appetite based on public opinion polls for impeachment hearings, right? And so what Republicans are banking on is is uh, Democrats are going to continually play theater and they're going to end up looking bad because it just looks like they, you know, they're with a, like a dog with a bone and they don't actually want to give up sort of the whole sort of fallout from the Mueller report. On the other hand, I think what Democrats are trying to
going to bank on is, is that they offer opportunities if they make demands, reasonable demands for oversight and the administration doesn't comply, then it makes the administration and by extension the Republican Party look like they are lawless and that they have no respect for institutions. And there's also a judicial side of this, that these things are going to court and as these things yeah. get litigated that Republicans might end up losing a few things. L let me ask you, buddy. Um, okay, so you've, you've got the president who has, has pretty much put a, a blanket stop on any cooperation with the U.S. House, okay? <clears throat> He's Just a puppeteer. Given your, given your experience, how likely is it that, that, the, uh, uh, that the House would retaliate with dollars, with funding, with, with pulling funding? From, from specific areas, say for the Justice Department or for the White House staffing? That's a dangerous game. That's a dangerous game. And I think it might be a little bit too obvious. Now, that's the way Trump plays ball, yes. But I don't think the House ought to be led into it as well because they have a responsibility far beyond Donald Trump. They have a responsibility to the country. And this is not the uh, last president, hopefully, we'll ever have in this country because the show must go on. Our government must go on. And they need to look in terms of the longer view, the longer picture, rather than just the immediate back and forth. I think it'd make the House look, frankly, uh, little and petty if uh, they took measures like that. Jim, uh, we all know that David Perdue has been one of the closest allies to President Trump on Capitol Hill, and we're going to watch very carefully in 2020 to see whether that serves him well or if, in fact, that becomes a real problem for him moving forward in his reelection campaign. I suppose the same could be said about whether Doug Collins, how far into bed Doug Collins really wants to be with Trump. It, it feels as if he's on safe ground as long as he's playing his role in judiciary. The question is if he moves beyond that. Right, and, 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 and he's, he's got beyond that, beyond that, in that area beyond, he's got a reputation for working well with, yeah. with playing well with Democrats, uh, particularly on things like uh, like uh, criminal justice reform. So I think as long as, he, I think you're right, as long as he can, as long as he kind of, th this is one case where to be portrayed as, as, as the president's lawyer and only the president's lawyer probably is is, is okay as as long as you 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 keep that uh, that uh, what Buddy was talking about that sense of that that's that sense of uh, uh, integrity. Yeah, but I also think that you know you're looking at this as you know, Doug's doing this because he's a supporter of the president's, which I believe he is. No, but no, I, no, no. I specifically uh, said he's playing certainly in his role in judiciary. He is working on behalf of the president. Absolutely, and to Buddy's point, I mean, you have to look at the institution. And I think the other thing, Congressman Collins, if you listen to some of the rest of his remarks, he talked about. The, the, you know, he compared the current chairman of the committee to the former chairman, Sensenbrenner, and how Sensenbrenner conducted himself as the Republican chairman of the committee. I do think, Andra, mm -hmm. um, I wonder if Democrats, Nadler, over, are overplaying their hand on this. The day before, if you were a Democrat mm -hmm. and watched uh, the attorney general in the House and the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, you came away with a lot of red meat that you could rally your troops with in terms of what you heard Bill Barr say. I wonder if Nadler didn't lose the opportunity by being so insistent, and, and Collins refers to this. Mm -hmm. Collins, in his, those remarks, if we'd played more of them, says we would have 
talk. We could have added, added an hour to his testimony. So I wonder if by being stubbornly insistent, Nadler, in fact, uh, lost a good opportunity for Democrats. So I think there are a couple of things here. So I think about this from a methodological standpoint, because I have to admit, I watch congressional hearings and I watch how <laughs> members of Congress ask questions. And as somebody who does this as part of my research method, I'm like, it sometimes befuddles me sort of how the arc of the questions and I don't understand why in terms of sort of each side like why they can't get together and agree about okay you're going to ask questions about this mm -hmm. you're going to come up next and it makes sense to ask these questions here and to kind of keep on going so I would actually just from an academic standpoint recommend a certain type of coordination across members as they're asking questions yeah. that could alleviate this problem. Oh, we got we got oh. here. We got so, well, let, 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 let it under finish and then we'll so, go to Bunny. On the on the other hand though, there are also other places where Nadler is indicating that he's willing to cooperate with Barr so that if this ends up in court, he can say that I wasn't obstructionist the whole time. So in particular, there is there they are, there's a back and forth going on right now even as we speak according to the Washington Post about the redactions yeah. and other types of things. So, you know, it it, it looks like, you know, I think they're both trying to figure out sort of where they can compromise and where they can look tough. And I think it's trying to like be able to compromise behind the scenes while maintaining this sort of tough posture publicly. But do you understand? Here's the difference, uh, Dr. Gillespie, you're an academician and you look at logic and reason. <laughs> I have a, I'm a politician and uh, politicians don't necessarily always look at it in that respect. And this is exactly playing out like both sides want it to play out. Right. They'll come together eventually and they will resolve then, but at the same time, everybody's got to get their licks in, and that's part of being a politician. You're looking at it from a reasonable basis. <laughs> yeah, but but she also, she looks at it as, as, an, as the great academician that she is. You as the politician, I'm just a voter. I mean, I hope I'm an informed voter. You're but not I'm, exactly a just a voter. <laughs> well, my point is I'm kind of disgusted but with the But you are an interviewer, thing. and there's a certain arc to how you ask yeah, questions in order true. to elicit responses. And there's some, members of, there's some members of Congress who do a great job, both Democratic and Republican, and then there's some people, it's like, why did you ask those questions in that order, you're not going to get the responses that you want just based on uh, how you set the question up. You know, and in anticipation of today's show, I uh, watched last night both Fox News and uh, CNN and MSNBC. Two worlds, it different is worlds. Two completely different worlds, <laughs> yeah. the way this was covered. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Let's do this, uh, because we had two other members of, of Georgia's uh, congressional delegation on the Judiciary Committee. They uh, both came to the stakeout position, the microphones, after the hearing or the, uh, the committee meeting broke up. Let's hear first. First from Democrat Hank Johnson from the 4th District. In the 2016 elections, this nation was attacked from outside of its borders by the Russians. As a result of their outside attack, we are now being attacked from the inside by the very Trump administration whom the Russians favored. This is a very dark day and a very dark time for our republic. It is under attack. The worst kind of damage that can be done to America is from its enemies from within. And we have enemies and we have aiders and abettors of those en enemies. And shortly after Hank Johnson went to the microphone, so did 6th District Congresswoman Lucy McBath. And we... Congress have the responsibility as a co-equal branch of government to protect and to serve and to make sure the American people have the facts and the information that they need to make sure that they know that government is truly working on their behalf. And my colleagues and I will continue to stand to fight for the truth. 
continue to stand for what is right to make sure that democracy works for each and every individual in this country. So, Jim, here you go. Uh, both sides, Collins we saw a little earlier, now McBath and Johnson uh, getting what they want out of what happened yesterday, which essentially was nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. My only problem is that I didn't get what I wanted. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is a clear and concise answer to some very specific yeah. well, that was my point questions before. about what was in the, the Mueller report. That was and, my point. But it got down to an argument of process versus yeah. substance. And what, what Doug Collins and Jerry Nadler were doing were arguing about process. Process. Those comments from uh, Hank Johnson and McBath were talking about more of the substance. We didn't even get to the substance because of the processed arguments that were going on between the chair and the ranking member. I, I think that's right. Andre, let me, we're going to move on beyond this, but, but I want to throw out a, an idea to you and see if it resonates at all. Um, as, as we've already discussed, and as anybody who's paying attention knows, the White House is being entirely intransigent, fighting the Democrats on the Hill in every way they can, refusing to let people testify, ignoring uh, requests for material, subpoenas for material. They simply refuse to work with the Democrats in Congress. This is the sort of thing that under, I think, normal circumstances, we might think is outrageous behavior. But here's what I'm, I'm wondering. Are we so lacking in civics education that the American people just really, and I don't mean Trump, I'm not talking Trump people and looking down on anyone. I'm just saying we don't teach civics anymore. I'm not sure people rep understand the co-equal branches of government, how important it is that we have them, that Congress has a crucial role. I, I wonder if we just don't quite grasp that in, in the way that we probably ought to, whether we're Democrats or Republicans. Does that make sense? So here are a couple of working hypotheses. You're probably right, but I don't necessarily know if I would blame all of this on the lack of civics education, though I would be a big proponent of making sure that there's clear civics education. I think the issue is, is that people remember their civics education when it is convenient for them to do so. Uh, and given hmm. our level of political polarization, there are people who only want to bring up rules and process when um, their party is the one that's actually being hurt by the yeah. situation. And so the thing that I worry about is I worry about the fact that you don't have moderates of either party kind of in the chamber to be the voice of reason and also to actually be the defenders of decorum yeah. um, to say like I'm going to look at, at Congressman Johnson's um, um, comments and I know personally he is a very nice man but there was some othering going on there like we have enemies from within mm -hmm. right like that type of language even though there are a lot of people who I think have good reasons to be sympathetic to it that's also the kind of language that actually makes it harder for people to be able to come together and and, and I think that that's also part of the problem yeah I, that makes sense to then me there's the KFC too <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, that type of theater was definitely sort of a, a, a yeah, little Steve, bit of uh, uh, of Tennessee. Yeah, from Tennessee with his, uh, and then yesterday he had a porcelain chicken sitting on Bill Barr's seat in the hearing room. You know, buddy, this well, Bill, is unnecessary. Bill, let's just go back to the real situation because William Barr, the attorney general, is playing not to the American public, not to the Congress, not to the House, the Senate. He's playing to one person, and that's Donald Trump. And as long as Donald Trump is happy and commends what he's doing and likes what he's seeing, then he's okay. He can skate, and he knows he's doing exactly what the president would have him do. 
All right. right, we're going to watch how this unfolds. And again, we will keep an eye on especially Doug Collins as all of this moves forward. It's fascinating to have a Georgia congressman in such a high-profile position with all of this. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And then I would love to ask the panel about just what they think about some developments in Gwinnett County that show us more clearly than ever how much that county has been changing. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Taya Ryan, President and CEO of GPB. We've been hearing from listeners across Georgia and beyond thanking us for GPB's Stealth Drive, the new, less intrusive fundraising approach you've been hearing about. We hope that listeners like you would appreciate getting more programming and less fundraising so much that we'd see the same level of support that comes in during a traditional fund drive. Here's where we're at. We've passed the halfway mark for the number of days of the drive. However, we have not yet reached the halfway mark in terms of the funding that sustains the services GPB provides. We're counting on you now to support the programs that matter to you and keep traditional on-air fundraising days this spring to a minimum. Donate online at gpb.org or call 1-800-222-4788. Thank you for supporting GPB. We're back on Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, if we needed any proof still that Gwinnett County is trending Democratic, we really need look no further than a report that uh, 11 Lives Doug Richards first broke yesterday. He was talking to Danny Porter, the DA who's been in that position for more than two decades. Six terms. A Republican DA, he told Doug that he thinks he wants to run for one last term, but... He might do it as a Democrat. Wow. Wow. That's really telling us all we need to know. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I mean, and, and, and Buddy and Eric, you, you, all, you all would uh, remember all those times when you had a, a Democrat standing up and saying, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me? Well... Guess what? Well, we're going we're to be hearing, I didn't leave the GOP. The GOP has left me. And you know what's interesting, Eric? I, I think Danny Porter, I don't know, I don't look at poll. I'm not sure there is polling about approval, disapproval. But he's been a very successful district attorney for the county. It isn't as if there are people who are, you know, moving to really push him out, except maybe because he's got the wrong party label now. Well, and, and I, you know, to your point, Jim, you know, it's not as though he made that statement. To me, it came across as opportunistic right. and that he just wants to run another term. He thinks he has a better shot getting elected. Well, yeah, well, yeah but, sure. but, that, but, but with that, when, when, when you had Democrats switching to the Republican Party, that's exactly what it was, too. Well, but they talked about how they believed in the Republican ideals. Oh, yes, I'm, I mean, sure that, I'm, I'm sure that there will be, some, if, if Porter makes that call, there'll be some conversation in that sense, too. But, I've got something to add here. Uh, when I saw that, of course, I contacted a friend of mine who's a newly elected state senator out there and said, uh, Danny Porter's a good man. He's been a good district attorney. Uh, you're going to reach out to him and maybe see if you can welcome him to the fold. And she said, well, the problem is this. Uh, when I was running for the Senate this past fall, not only did he campaign against me, but he did a TV ad against me. So yeah. it kind of puts, puts him in a bad situation because uh, I, I would love to see the Democratic Party welcome him because I think he's been a very positive force in law enforcement in, yeah. this, in this state for a number of years. But at the same time, you've got Democrats who 
also want to run for district attorney in a primary, so could he get out of a primary? That's right. the problem yeah. right there. And I think the big question is, is that since it doesn't look like he's made an ideological shift, especially on the types of criminal justice issues that might animate Democratic voters in, um, you know, in, in, in this, in this, in the county, right, then I think it does actually look more opportunistic as opposed to the party passing by him, because he still seems pretty conservative. He still seems, yeah. you know, just in, in practice to still be a Republican. And so what does it look like if you're donning the Democratic mantle at the last minute in order to, you know, be more acceptable to the change but, but to, but, of the but county? To, to Buddy's point, uh, the last, I believe, the last major convert that uh, Republicans got uh, from a sitting Democrat was Ashley Bell, up uh, one mm. one county up in in Hall mm. County. He was a county commissioner. It was 2014. He switched. To, he came up for re-election two years later. He he couldn't get out of a, a, a GOP primary African because American. Of, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. he was, was African American. Yeah. But it, but there was also a lot of resentment that you know here was a newcomer trying to take advantage. But we we should, let's first of all make sure we say this was apparently mentioned in a longer conversation it's a trial balloon yeah. yes he is not he has not firmly said i'm switching parties here and i and i would say that 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 eric your point i think is well taken i think recalling back when sonny purdue was a democrat back when nathan deal was a democrat two of the most prominent examples of people who switched parties i do think you're, you're you make a point when you say there were ideological underpinnings for their their move. It isn't as, and, and so it, it therefore uh, supported that quote, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me. Although I'm not sure it's as true in Georgia politics as it would have been if they had been in, say, Illinois. You know? Yeah. I, I do think <laughs> that he, he, he probably needs to um, sort of clarify his comments pretty quickly yeah. because just leaving that hanging out there on both sides uh, you're going to create some confusion. On a related note I think most of you are aware that two of our Republican office holders finally succeeded in having their offices made nonpartisan this year by act of the legislature. One is our magistrate judge and also our probate judge will now be nonpartisan at the next election. This is we Justin tried to do this it. is Justin Cobb uh, County. Justin right? Cobb okay. County, yes. We mm -hmm. tried to do it uh, when the Republicans were in charge, but had no success. But now, all of a sudden, our legislature has seen the light now. And fortunately, I'm glad. I think it's good government. I think those two offices ought to be nonpartisan. I think this is probably the people will come out ahead here. So there's another interesting story out of Gwinnett that's on the other side of this coin, Andra. Butch Conway, the longtime sheriff up there, tough law and order guy, has been for years. Um, he has been a part of the ICE program, uh, 287G is, is the formal name for it, in which local authorities make a deal with ICE, immigration enforcement, that they will turn over undocumented immigrants who are arrested to the feds. And Conway, despite the change in uh, the climate up there, uh, made it clear the other day when this agreement comes up in June, uh, he has every intention of renewing it. Yeah, and I think that that might actually be evidence of a little bit of tone deafness there. So, um, you know, you know, you might want to sort of, you know, law and order works very well here. He's probably looking at Governor Kemp and is seeing how sort of him going to the right on immigration, you know, helped him to win win the governorship. But he forgot that Governor Kemp did not win Gwinnett County. Um, and then also looking at the fact that a quarter of the population of Gwinnett County is foreign born. This is an issue that's going to be really near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, both immigrant and non-immigrant. Like, you don't want to be characterized as the Joe Arpaio 
Ohio of Georgia, and that's the road that he's heading on. And so I don't necessarily know if this is the most effective thing for him to do. Here's what he's doing. He's uh, manipulating uh, to get in a position where he can be appointed to a statewide law enforcement mm -hmm. position. And uh, just like our wonderful district attorney, uh, Vic Reynolds, uh, left the DA's job to become head of the uh, GBI, I think it was a great step for him. And I think this is what uh, Sheriff Conway has in yeah, mind. Yeah, he is, he is not committed to, to re-election in right, 2020. exactly. But Democrats are already lining up saying they want to run against mm -hmm. him up there. I wonder, you know, in a guy like Butch Conway, uh, you know, it's interesting, Andre compares him, say, in a way to Joe Arpaio, where he says he shouldn't go that route. <laughs> I, I wonder if Conway is simply too hard-headed and, and fixed in his ways about immigration to want to make a political calculation I, about I, this. I think that's probably the case. And you do have the same situation building in Cobb County, where you've got Neil Warren, who's seeking, seeking another term. He is also he, he is also signed on with 287G. I don't know if they're close to, to, to the end of their contract or not. He has been noticeably silent about these issues, though, as opposed to Sheriff Conway, who has been quite outspoken. So we'll be watching to see what my friend uh, Sheriff Neil Warren does. And he's been a good sheriff. However, I think he sees the uh, time changing. All right, let, let's move on to yet another story that uh, the, six, the uh, uh, Gwinnett County is, is deeply involved in. It's not, Gwinnett is not the entire 7th District, Congressional District, but it makes up a big part of it. Eric, um, this week, uh, we got a new Democratic contender in the race, Brenda Lopez, who would be it's the first Latina to declare officially her candidacy for a congressional seat in Georgia. She's been a state rep, of course. And, uh, and um, so she's in the race. Carolyn Bordeaux on the Democratic side is in the race. We got several candidates on the Democratic it's side. John Eves. John Eves <laughs> has, is moving up there to the seventh, a former Fulton County commission chair. So there's lots. Of, all right. We may have been doing you a disservice the last couple of shows when we've talked about a Republican entrant, entrant into that contest, Lynn Hamrick. Mm -hmm. Lynn Hamrick is, uh, has, she's been a Home Depot executive. Her husband works for Arthur Blank, runs his for-profit company, the Falcons, the Atlanta United. And we've said that you sent out a lot of tweets on the weekend before she announced that we thought meant that you were working specifically on her behalf. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that you get a chance to tell us where you really are, because we have may have mischaracterized you without meeting. Yeah, no, I just, I just got tipped off before the weekend before she announced that she was uh, going to announce. I thought there were some exclamation points in those tweets. Well, there were. I mean, I, 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 well, you, you sensed a little thrill in the, in the, in the tweet. Well, there. There, there, there was a thrill in that, you know, I think it, it's known that I'm very engaged in recruiting women, Republican women, to run for office. That's a big passion of mine. I think that Republicans have to recruit more women. And, you know, whenever a woman steps forward, a qualified woman to run for office, I'm all for it. And I happen to know Lynn personally. And when I heard that she was going to run, I was very excited about it. I also have a long history with Renee Unterman. I'm thrilled to death that we have two women that are running in that primary. Yeah, Todd Ream, who's worked with her for a very long time, um, said on this show Wednesday, left very little doubt that Unterman's going to get into this race. She, of course, a Republican member of the state Senate. 
was treated very badly by the men on the Republican side in the Senate. Uh, they stripped her of a very important uh, committee chairmanship. Uh, and, and it's pretty clear she's going to jump into this thing as well. Although she's a I good soldier. She's a good soldier. Yeah, and she I will say, too, that, the ball yeah, it, I mean, I think she started off the session, maybe it was a little rough, but I think she ended the session uh, working very closely with, with the Senate leadership. And, and, and quite honestly, she represents 50% of the women, Republican women in the state Senate. <laughs> I hate the fact, I hate the fact that she's... <laughs> Leaving, I'd love for her to stay in the Senate because I think we need more women in the Senate. And if she is leaving uh, that Senate seat, I hope Republican women run for it. Well, you know, one of the things I think that's interesting between these two women is where they're going to position themselves ideologically and what is most congruent with that district. And so when we've been thinking about those North Metro districts, particularly the 6th and the 7th district, and we're thinking about them as being more moderate districts. And so Hamrick has taken this conservative vote, so she's going to be perceived, rightly or wrongly, as the more conservative of the two candidates. So the question for me is whether or not Unterman is actually in the stronger position because of the fact that she's had to fight the male leadership in the Senate, because she's spoken out in favor of Me Too, because of the work that she did on rape kits. That might be the type of thing that might actually appeal but, to college-educated suburban women in those districts. But she also carried HB 481. Right. Yeah. So, and, 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 and I wonder how that's going to play out. Uh, you, you've you've talk, talked to Ms. Zomrick, uh, uh, Eric, did she mention that bill? I didn't, I didn't discuss that particular bill with her, but I... I Let's make I, sure here. It was Renee Unterman who carried 481. Right. Lynn Hamrick had nothing to do. I just want to make sure that third person right. pronoun and I, and I is not more, misinterpreted. I may be more close to, you know, Senate record, but, yeah. you know, if I look at Renee Unterman's career, at least in my impression of her, she's very conservative. Yeah, buddy, I don't know how you even look past 481 if you're a female voter. And if, if the voters are, as Andra says, more uh, moderate up in Gwinnett, how do you even look beyond 481 to examine the rest of her career? It's going to be the centerpiece for a lot of Democratic campaigns right. coming up this year. And I don't think anybody can be oblivious to it. I think uh, Renee Unterman, Senator Unterman, either lives or dies by her participation in this bill. It might be good to get her through a Republican primary, and maybe that's what she's banking on, but I think it would have serious consequences when it came to a general election. And that's my point. I think I'm talking about the primary, and I think you are looking yeah. ahead to the general election. And so it would, so yes, but I would say that both of these candidates would have a problem if you're looking for, you know, the, the sort of wide sort of birth of sort of who actually lives in that district now. Right. But in terms of getting out of the primary for some of those suburban women who may have stayed home in 2016, you know, who may have, you know, voted for Carolyn Bordeaux, like, you know, like who might, but who would vote in a Republican primary. Like, I do wonder if Renee Unterman can actually use some of her challenges with the male leadership mm. in order to be able to ride that to the nomination. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the organization and money is going to be key yeah. in this race, too. Yeah. And, you know, while Renee Unterman's been in the Senate, she, she's got an organization. She, I don't believe she's had a competitive race, you know, for the last several years. But you're going to have to raise a lot of money for both the primary and then for the general election because this but, is going but, to be a competitive race. But remember, years ago, years ago, when it, when when uh, in when uh, Renee Unterman got into the Senate, that Senate race was, I think, the most expensive uh, legislative race on record at the right. time. Really? 
How many years ago was that? Yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was a <laughs> yeah. good while ago. Yeah. It was, but I remember it as well. Jim and I have been around a while, and uh, I, I submit to you that it was not only expensive, it was mean and nasty. Yeah. All right, let, let me look at one other uh, aspect of the 7th District, but actually the, the whole ticket uh, in 2020 uh, state it, it, in races in Georgia. Uh, Eric, uh, before the show today, you said to me, uh, gee, can we spend a minute talking about the absence of Stacey Abrams as a candidate for Senate on the general election ballot now? Um, what that impact is going to be for candidates for 7th District, for 6th District. Uh, she did propel a lot of Democrats to go to the polls in 2018, and you believe that her absence is going to hurt the Democratic uh, Party. A absolutely, in particular in the metro area. Republicans lost a number of legislative seats. They lost the 6th District congressional seat. They almost lost the 7th congressional seat. And I think a lot of that had to do with the energy that was behind the Abrams campaign. And she spent a lot of time mobilizing people in metro Atlanta. And she is now not going to be on the ticket. And I'm sure there'll be, you know, a strong Democrat on the ticket. But I don't think they're going to be as strong as someone like Stacey Abrams, who would have had a, a big effect on mobilizing uh, all of those Democratic voters and, and even independent women that she turned out. So Jim, even, with, with the, even with the fact that it will be President Trump who will be on the very top of the ticket, and I would think that his presence is either going to uh, uh, you know, entice those people who are strongly behind him. But aren't are the, the people in the 6th and 7th who uh, do not want Donald Trump to win a second term going to oh, turn oh, yeah, out yeah, look, any, look, Donald, anyway? Donald Trump will be a, will, will be a driving force. But, but I, 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 I agreed uh, with Eric to this extent. For, for the last two years, you've had Stacey Abrams kind of becoming the, the face of the Democratic yeah. Party. I mean, uh, I mean I'm, not, I'm not saying it's a cult of personality, but she, she became, she and, 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 and the state Democratic Party were so closely mm -hmm. identified. Now she's pulling away, and you wonder why, if, if the state Democratic Party is, is prepared, was prepared and had somebody ready to step in, into that vacuum. So, I mean, I think the big question for this to determine whether or not this was a cult of personality is whether or not the infrastructure stays. So yeah. Abrams has made a claim that she has built an infrastructure in the yeah. state of Georgia. She yeah. sold this to the DNC. If that's true, then the mobilization sort of, the mobilization campaign should go on without her being there. Yeah, you don't get the same type of earned media, you don't get the same type of attention, but the drill is, can you get people on the doors to tell people to turn out to vote and then get those people? Well, to I the think the top, of the, the top of the ticket's going to matter, who the Democrats nominate mm -hmm. uh, for president. That will have a big impact. And let's also not forget the fact that David Perdue uh, his, his numbers are actually pretty decent in Metro Atlanta, and he's working hard in Metro Atlanta and is showing up. And he's going to be out there, and he's going to be paying a lot of attention. But do you get the last word before the break? The one thing that Stacey Abrams brought to the Democrats was intensity. Mm -hmm. And she, elections are about intensity. And I agree to a certain extent with Eric in that uh, we won't have that same level of intensity. However, I'm hoping that what Dr. Gillespie has said is true and that we've built the infrastructure and we've gotten to a certain point now and we can build on that. So I think it's a legitimate question, a legitimate discussion to be determined. Andre, you get the last word before the break. So all I want to say is that while empirically <laughs> vice presidential picks don't matter, I feel pretty certain that Stacey Abrams is likely, if she doesn't run for president herself, but even if she did, to end up on the short list for VP.
Okay, but what if Kamala Harris is the nominee? Do you think there'll be two? I said shortlist. I didn't necessarily say they were going okay. to be. Okay, all right, all right. Well, we have more than enough time. We have plenty of time to talk about that in the months ahead. Uh, right now, we got to get to a break. We'll do that and be back with more on Political Rewind. Welcome to GPB's Stealth Drive, an innovative way we're fundraising on the air this spring. The bottom line is you get more of the programs you come to GPB for and less fundraising on the air. But it will only work when listeners like you keep GPB strong. The best way to do that is to join us as a GPB sustainer. Your ongoing monthly contribution provides a steady stream of support for the programs you enjoy. Donate at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. And thanks. I'm Ira Plato. On the next Science Friday, a new look at how the brain sees, an explanation of how caricatures became such a popular art form, and the 18th century scientist whose travels convinced him that humans were changing the climate for the worse. It's likely you've never heard of Alexander von Humboldt. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. 3 o'clock this afternoon on GPB. We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Um, we're back with you on the show. Uh, before the show's over today, we're going to let you know about where we're taking our show on the road, where we're going to be next. Our senior producer, Tom Faust, thinks you can hardly wait for that announcement. So hang on, it'll be coming soon. Uh, Jim Galloway, your jolt pointed out the other day, yesterday maybe, that it, here's an example of David Rawlson cannot quite put this controversy over how his work as speaker and how his work as an attorney representing clients have intermingled in ways that some people are very concerned about. This last week, the Gainesville Times, a relatively major newspaper, I suppose, it it's up there in a big part of the state, editorialized that it was time for him to step down. Let, let's just read one quick part of what that editorial said. He, meaning Ralston, does not understand that he has squandered the trust of those who selected him to fill the position many feel to be the second most powerful in state government, and because he does not understand, he should no longer be in that position. Now, the Gainesville Times isn't going to determine his future, but the fact that this will not quite go away is really unsettling for a David Ralston. Right, now, and, and this is all about how his, his private law practice yeah. and accusations that he has used that law practice, uh, his, used his legislative position to advantage his clients by delaying court cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's, what's interesting this, you, you don't, I mean, a, a lot of newspapers in Georgia have kind of shied away from, from opinion journalism. Uh, we, we've, uh, the AJC has reduced its, its, uh, uh, its, its editorial footprint. Uh, the Gainesville Times, for the last decade, has been this uniquely positioned newspaper uh, because it's in Hall County in Gainesville. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Deal was a native of, of, of Hall County. Uh, Casey Cagle, the lieutenant governor, lived there. Butch Miller, who is now president pro tem of the Senate, he, he lives there. And Ralston is just on the edge of, of, of the Gainesville circulation area. So, so I think it does, it, it does carry some clout when you're, when you're hometown paper. And Ralston used to work for that newspaper. Yeah, he was a young kid apparently. In, in the new, in the, newsroom. in the right. newsroom. So what did, where are we headed? I mean, this is not going away, Eric Tannenblatt. Well, it's going to be up to the members of the of the caucus. Right. And, you know, we're 
you know, this is not an election year, so it's not as if the speaker's going in and, you know, helping to raise money for all the candidates that are out there. And, and I guess you'll see over the summer if the caucus, you know, seems to, if this dies down or not, or if things like what you saw in the Gainesville Times continues to bubble up. I, I find it a little hard to, if, if this thing didn't uh, grow in intensity during the session, if Ralston hadn't gone to the well, tried to make amends, tried to put in place some rules that he thought would change this, but if it didn't bubble up in a way that cost him his job as speaker, at least, um, this past session, I find it hard to imagine it's going to grow to be a big, big controversy in 2020's uh, session. Well, having been a lawyer in the General Assembly of Georgia, I took advantage of a provision that allowed me to stay out of court three weeks uh, after I got out of out of the session, and of course during the session. However, it's gotten to be so broad now that uh, I think some people have probably taken unfair advantage of the situation. And, Do you think Ralston has? And I don't know. I haven't studied that carefully. But I, w I will. I will say this: He needs to get his business in order. I'm a friend of David Ralston, and, and I think he's done a lot of good things for the state. But at the same time, he needs to hire somebody to come in there and look after his business. You know his. His uh, former law partner, Amanda Mercier, is now on the Court of Appeals. And uh, in a place like up in Blue Ridge, you don't have that many lawyers. And he's got to get in there and get somebody to run his business. You know, there, 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 are two, there are two places where Ralston might need to worry about this. And, well, well three places. His own re-election bid uh, uh, next mm -hmm. May. Uh, he has to worry uh, if, if, if uh, House Republican incumbents face primary challenges, and he becomes an issue in those primary right. challenges, which I think is the, probably the, the greatest danger. And then in a November election, uh, whether whether there will be enough, uh, whether a House, uh, whether Democratic challengers to House Republicans might bring that up. Yeah, who knows, Andre, how many Democrats are going to be, uh, uh, sit well, no, I'm sorry, we're talking about 2021, not 2020. Uh, just a little senior moment there. Anyhow, this hasn't gone away for Ralston. It hasn't gone away, and I just would think from a PR standpoint about what would be the best way to dispatch with this issue. So I agree with Congressman Darton and have said so on this show. Like, he needs to handle his business and hire junior partners to help him with the business to make sure that his cases can go on even when he is not in a capacity, and I think he needs to publish publicly sort of announce those things um, as a signal that he has heard the critique um, and that, you know, he is willing to sort of behave differently. And he did during the session, you know, step forward after, you know, this came to light and took action. The legislature passed legislation. We don't know what he has done since the legislature, right. and it's very possible that he has. All right. What about this FBI agent, former FBI agent that was came in and did this analysis. Was that hired by somebody that we know of? It was a private oh, investigator. Yeah. Yeah, and we weren't, we, it, 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 the problem is no one has independently verified what he d says he discovered, which was many, many examples of Ralston abusing this, mm. this privilege. Um, mm -hmm. All right, a couple of quick items because we're running uh, short on time. First of all, Jim, there seems to be some actual movement on a compromise uh, between at least Senate Republicans and Democrats over this Hurricane Michael and other emergency relief funds. The Senate is now promising additional aid of $300 million, 300 million plus million. for Puerto Rico. 
Rico. And, and, and you've, got, you've got Republican senators, including Isaacson and Purdue, working very hard to make sure that President Trump doesn't bolt. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, we don't know, do we? I think that's the wild card. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it was really interesting to see what Senator Purdue said in the National Press and the Washington Post versus what he said in the AJC. But, like, between his comments and Senator Leahy's comments, it looks like there is some bipartisan movement um, to making sure that everybody gets the disaster funding that they need. And I think the big wild card question is what the president does. Yeah, we'll, we'll wrap on David Perdue, and we all know it. There's no point in acting like it's not there. It's who you're loyal to, President of the United States or the people of Southwest Georgia. And he might have to make a tough decision here. And well, if, I, you, if I know David Perdue and being astute enough, it's sometime it might be time to cut the president. Well, loose. but that, that presumes the president isn't going to go along with this, uh, Yeah. Eric. I, look, I think the president was going along with it, and then Senator Schumer, you know, ratcheted up his demands. So, uh, look, David Perdue knows his priorities are the constituents of Georgia. I think that's the way he's conducted himself. He has a good relationship with the president. I think we would want our United States senator to have a good relationship with the president. And just as we just talked about, we need Senator Isaacson and Senator, and Senator Perdue to keep the president in check well, with this compromise. Look, look the, the politics aside, uh, the farmers in South Georgia need this money. Right. And by the way, Absolutely. I, and by the way, uh, because Twitter and uh, it can be such a really lovely, positive medium. Uh, <laughs> I took a lot of heat the other day when I talked about how much South Georgia needs the uh, help, and I was uh, upbraided for not pointing out that Puerto Rico does, too. It does. <laughs> so we hope it works successfully for everybody. Finally, Jim, we only have a couple minutes for this, but an interesting item today. We, we've seen uh, Johnny Isaacson sort of try to go his own way in a number of instances when it comes to President Trump. And now he's done it. He apparently was in a meeting with the president and a few other member, Republican senators the other day, urging the president not to go ahead and impose auto tariffs on, on cars brought in from outside this country, saying it would be bad for the economy, bad for jobs, and that sort of thing. It, here's again, Isaacson sort of staking out an independent position. Yeah, well, he, well he, look, he, he's, uh, you've got President Trump who is behaving as if Detroit is the same Detroit that it was in the 1950s and 60s. And Georgia and, and much of the rest of the Southeast has developed this autom uh, automotive production system that re relies heavily on imports, on imports of parts. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very much, it's, it's cross-border intensive. And I would, I would point to... Uh, uh, that I would say that Isaacson is probably looking out for 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 Georgia Republicans at this point, because what's headquartered in Sandy Springs, Mercedes Mercedes Benz, oh, yeah, and and, 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 and Porsche and Porsche and, 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 and South right. Atlanta, and, and you've got you've got a yeah. you've got a, a yeah. very determined uh, effort by Karen Handel to retake that sixth district seat. Yeah, it, it could figure in. All right, um, that brings us to the end of our show today. We're really completely out of time. Uh, Buddy Darden, Eric Tannenblatt, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Jim Galloway, I really enjoyed having you here, Jim. You're going to be back with me on Monday at 2 o'clock. And one of these we'll talk about is that uh, uh, we'll have given people a chance to watch, read your column on Robert Benham, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the great nuggets from your interview with It's you. got a couple Easter eggs in there. It's really interesting. <laughs> all right, a couple of items before we go. First of all... 
We want to thank Morgan Carter. She has been an intern with us for the last uh, more than semester. She's a teacher up at Kennesaw State. She completed her master's degree. She had her orals last week. She passed with flying colors. And now she heads off into the world uh, with a master's degree. We're just waiting for the PhD to come next, Morgan. But thank you for everything you've done for us on Political Rewind during your time here. We really will miss you. Now, one other item. We're all set to go on the road again. We always enjoy getting out to do the show in front of live audiences. And you are so receptive and been so great to welcome us. Our next show on the road has now been planned. On Monday night, June 3rd, we're going to be in Cartersville, Georgia at the Grand Theater, 7 o'clock Monday night, the 3rd. You can get tickets. They're free, but we want you to reserve them, so there's definitely a seat for you. Just go to uh, politicalrewind.org, click on the link, and save your ticket so you can come join us for our show up in Cartersville, Georgia. So that's it for us for today. Thanks so much for all you've been uh, doing in terms of uh, being listeners to this show, watching us when our show is on TV on Sunday morning. And one last time, I want to tell you how thrilled all of us are. Tom Faust, Robert Jimison, myself, Taya Ryan, our president and CEO, Sarah Shariari, our managing editor, when we found out that you have put us in the top 20 podcasts in the United States because you like Political Rewind so much. Thank you so much. And I'm talking NPR podcast. Don't tweet me about that. Thanks a lot for being with us. See you again Monday at 2. <laughs> oh, that's great.